0: I've worked with clients that the MLROs put their hand up and said, I need some help on this and very quickly they get the support and the resource they need. But other times it has to be a complete car crash until they get listened to.
1: Welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance and financial crime to the real world. world I'm your host, Madit, CEO of Strice, and in this episode, we are asking... How do we stop MLRO burnout? Money laundering reporting officers, known as MLROs, are a vital component of financial services, a crucial link between the company, the risks they face and the conversations with authorities. Last year, the UK's Financial Conduct Authority sent a warning to hundreds of companies who had burned through three or more MLROs in just three years. What does this all tell us? Are there unreasonable expectations on this job, high stress, or is this just a competitive marketplace where talent can move around? In today's episode, we're joined by a great guest to discuss the problems with the MLRO role today, what needs to change to stop this revolving door situation, and why is it so important to get this right? To dive into this topic, I'm here with Adam Villarsa, Principal Consultant Pathlight Associates. Welcome to The Laundry, Adam.
0: Thanks, Mara. Thanks for the introduction.
1: Can you start by telling our listeners about you, your background and your relation to this topic?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I first started working in financial crime about sort of seven or eight years ago. I, I worked for the serious fraud office in London as a uh, investigative uh, lawyer. So I was investigating uh, allegations of bribery and corruption. Um, I did that for a while before joining the consulting world, so I worked for a big four consulting firm working in financial crime, Um, got to work across Europe and Asia Pacific um, with some pretty large banks and then I took an opportunity to become an MLRO for a a European fintech, so I was a regional MLRO um, that covered UK, Ireland and Malta. Um, and after having done that for a while and having sort of been through a bit of MLRO burnout, I took the decision to go back into consulting where I where I work now. So I've sort of seen this from, from different angles.
1: Thank you. It should be interesting to dive into this topic. So let's start by looking at why we have this high turnover of MLROs today. To set the scene, let's look back at your experience in the sector at this major European fintech. So. When you started as the MLRO, What did your day to day look like?
0: Yeah, look, good question. I think every day was different, Um, and I think there's always the the challenge of balancing the day to day operational financial crime issues that come up. So that's dealing with escalations, looking at transaction alerts that have been elevated from investigators, things like that, through to the larger, more sort of strategic projects. So you know, are certain systems set up correctly? Are policies and procedures set up correctly? Are things you know do things need to be rewritten? Do you need to have have you know proper governance and oversight of, of your of your daily work, are you doing that correctly? So I sort of see that the the two streams and they're always competing with one another in terms of the time that they take from you. So to say, what does a typical day look like? I don't think there is a typical day. Um, you can have you know time penciled for a week or two or a month to focus on a project, and then something comes up with your local financial intelligence unit or a local police force that you've got to deal with, and that has to take priority. So it's varied.
1: So the topics that you mentioned, I mean, they are familiar to anyone working with financial crime, and I'm sure mm. it was familiar to you as well, having worked in the consultancy world before coming into this. But when you got into the MLRO, job what was the thing that like surprised you the most that you didn't expect it to be
0: yeah i think when you're a consultant you sort of you sort of feel like you know you you, you have an expectation that you can take over a situation and you can run an organization and sometimes you reflect with some clients go, like, how they got themselves into this mess so i think probably naively i thought oh you know i'll be able to do this easy i've done this i've given this advice to many many clients before and i think what was surprising was the volume of work and the the difference in work that you had to do as an MLRO. So you're not just taking a discrete particular regulatory issue, which you might be more frequent for a, for a consultant to come in and look at. You've also got to look at the broader commercials. You've got to look at, well, if I make a certain business, if I make a certain financial crime decision, what are the business implications for that? So I think that was probably one of the most challenging things was getting my head around all of the different aspects and angles that an MLRO needs to to cover.
1: In You know, in general, in uh, business literature, people talk a lot about, you know, the context switching. That's really Mm. hard when you jump between a lot of different topics and just the sheer amount of volume on top of this context switching. I can't imagine it was like such an overwhelming workload.
0: Yeah, it can be. I mean, um, I'd also moved into a position where it had been vacant for a while. So there were some outstanding sort of back book issues that needed to be dealt with. Um, and I was a, a regional MLRO. So I did have a group MLRO that I was reporting to, but I was covering three countries, two of which were new branches. So I had to quite quickly get my head around where the two new branches were at and then sort of figure out some of the, the outstanding UK issues. And there was, you know, there was a period of time where I had to try and repair the relationship with certain police forces in the UK that had had outstanding inquiries with us that hadn't hadn't been properly dealt with to the, the level that the, the UK authorities had expected. And then there was also a large project around getting our um, getting our FCA application post-Brexit right. So we, we were passporting into the UK prior to Brexit and then had to finalise our FCA standalone e-money license. So there was a lot of spinning plates and I had to try and get my head around a lot. And also, you know, when I started off, um, I didn't really have a big team based in the UK. I had some sort of external European resources I could lean on, but I had to sort of build the business case to to hire some, some people in the UK to help me out due to the, the volume of work that we sort of had to get through.
1: So the responsibilities are wide and mm. the volume is high and, you know, it's so much work as you're describing. Do you remember... Or was there like a pivotal moment where you decided, okay, now is the time for me to leave. How did the decision to leave come about?
0: Yeah, it wasn't easy. I think the reason for me, and I think this is the most important thing for any MLRO, is is making sure the culture of the organization you're in is, is a good one. And to understand that the business's risk appetite aligns with your own personal risk appetite. I think, you know, as an MLRO, you're accountable and responsible to the regulator, whatever country you're in. And if you've got a business that has an immense risk appetite and is not not willing to mitigate that risk in a way that you as the MLRO see fit, your position essentially becomes untenable. And I sort of got to a point where I personally wasn't comfortable with the amount of risk that the business was taking on. And so I thought the right decision was was to leave. As I saw many other um, regional MLROs at the firm that I worked for do as well, I think and again not just as my, my experience as MLRO, I've seen this with clients is that you get to a point sometimes where MLRO is what they signed up for and what the business was doing at the beginning of the, their journey changes significantly as, as businesses do. And you get to a point where the business is doing something completely different. And and that makes the position very difficult for not just the, the MLRO, but anyone who's sort of working in the compliance function.
1: It's not just you who have experienced this MLRO burnout. We've seen it in the reports from the FCA from comments and other people in the industry and when i posted about this on linkedin i got an overwhelming like response to it and um one of the people who commented on my post gavin ball wrote on linkedin that mlros are undervalued overworked and under resourced and very stressed
0: couldn't agree more i I could not agree more and i think um we as an mlro you have a very, very important, a vital role within the organization. And I think one of the challenges that I face and many other MLROs face is the constant discussion around resourcing and finance. I think because compliance is always a cost center and we don't bring money into a business, you have to have a practical conversation with people who control the purse strings within any firm, be it small or large. And you're constantly battling to justify why you should have more people or why you should have more budget or why you should have more of a salary. And when other parts of the business can quite easily say, well, we've brought in, you know, X hundreds of thousands or X millions, you get to get to the MLRO compliance function and we're never going to bring money in. The only way that we can really measure our success is by stopping the risk from happening and fines. So, I think quite quickly, organizations will quite will quite quickly blame an MLRL if something goes wrong, but won't necessarily fund them and resource them to do the job that, the way that they see fit.
1: Do you think then MLRLs are being a bit ignored internally?
0: I think they can do. I think it depends on the culture of the organization. I've worked with clients that the MLO has put their hand up and said, I need some help on this. And very quickly, they get the support and the resource they need to bring external consultants or external support in to deal with a certain issue early on. But other times, it has to be a complete car crash until they get listened to. And by then, a lot of the time, they have either wanting to leave the business, have left the business or have been kicked out of the business. You know, there's there's been a number of uh, clients that I've worked with where you go back and review notes and um, and reports that Rose have left and they've been saying, warning, 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 issue, 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 and it's not been listened to. So, yeah, it's... It is, it is a big problem, and I, I think it, the size of the problem varies based on the size of the business. You get the same sort of issues happening at smaller firms as you do at bigger firms, but it, again, it's all proportionate based on the size of, of the firm that you're talking about.
1: So there's been a lot of MLROs leaving their job, and one argument could be that there is a better paid opportunity somewhere else. So it might just be a competitive market and MLROs are in high demand and there's a better opportunity somewhere else. Do you think there is any truth to that?
0: Absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, we discussed earlier about how you're constantly having to justify your your existence and the resources that you need and, and the pay for both yourself and your people. I think, you know, when you look at MLROs and where they traditionally come from, a lot of them have legal or tech backgrounds. And if you go back into the consulting world or or law firm environments, things like that, with practical experience, you can earn a lot more money. And yes, you know, compared to maybe the average salary out there, Emily Rose do get paid quite well. But you look at the amount of risk and accountability and and uh, that, that they have to take on board, and the potential to go to jail, it, it's not necessarily proportionate. And there is, you know a lot of money to be made out there in other roles using the experience and skills that you gain as an MLRO. But I've also seen, you know, on the other hand, within certain financial services firms, there are huge salaries being paid to people who are are earning big commissions, which is great. But I think some of that needs to be shared around with the people that hold the risk as well.
1: I agree. If you're taking on personal risk and might even go to jail in the extreme case, of course, Mm. then you should be paid uh, accordingly. Absolutely. But what happens if we don't address this revolving door culture when it comes to MLRO, what will be the real world implications here?
0: Yeah, I think the, the real world implications are you, you're going to constantly have people who are, who are either ill-equipped or very new to the role doing the role, who are not doing it particularly well. And that, I mean, has a societal risk that you've got businesses that aren't capturing financial crime and reporting it the way that they're that they're expected to do so. Um, but I think for firms, the big challenge they face is they just they don't have that continuity within their business. You know, it takes a period of time for any new MLRO. You know, if they've moved to a new organisation, to understand the business, to understand the products, to understand the geographic risk, that takes time. And if you're constantly losing people who have spent some time in that position and developed that knowledge at the point where they've only been there, you know, six to 12 months, which I would say is the absolute minimum to get your head around any organization. If you're constantly recycling through those people, you're never going to have the skill set and knowledge within your firm to do the job that is expected of MLRO. And I think that comes down to what the FCA's point has been is that they're concerned that firms aren't retaining that knowledge I think that there's a lot of work to be done on the FCA side as well. I I, I don't think the FCA necessarily have good retention of their own staff. So when you do deal with the FCA on on issues as an MLRO, quite often you're dealing with one issue and you deal with three different people in the times that you're dealing with that one issue as an MLRO. So, you know, the issue is on both sides. It's not just at the the firm side it's also at the fca side and i think again it comes down to salary i think the fca don't pay particularly well compared to some of the big banks and i think people go there for a period of time to gain the skills they need to then move on with their careers so it's a big problem
1: this february we're asking kyb my valentine the podcast connecting AML, compliance and financial crime to the real world is hosting our first ever live on-stage recording from the UK capital. We're recording The Laundry Live on February 8th at Shoreditch Studios, bringing you killer keynotes, expert guests, hot takes and networking too. If you can't make it to London, we'll also be streaming the whole thing on February 9th on YouTube. Go check out the links in the podcast description to get your free ticket to this event or to sign up to our live stream. Choose us this Valentine's season. So we have now laid out all of the problems. So let's jump to the (laughs) next topic, which is the solution. How can we solve this? So let's start with, if you were to think back on your own job as an MLRO, what will be the, you know, the top thing that you could change in order to make you stay?
0: Yeah, I think, um, Support and resourcing money, they're all really important things. And I think, you know, had that been different, it probably would have impacted my decision. But I think too, it ultimately comes down to culture. I think firms need to really understand and appreciate the value an MLRO can bring to a business. They're not MLROs are not always the people that say no. They're the people that say, well, we can do this, but we can do it in this particular way to mitigate risk and create business opportunities. I think if that culture can change within firms, you'll you'll see the real value that MLROs can bring, as opposed to just sort of being an insurance policy, which quite often I see them as being I think quite often MLA Rose are just seen as the person that you can blame if things go wrong. And the people that say no, I think that needs to change. I think the, the, the salaries within the, the sector need to change. I, I, like I said, on both sides, I think there needs to be greater acknowledgement um, through you know, bonuses and things like that for MLA Rose when things are going well to retain good people and to reward the positives, the good things that MLROs are doing, the fact that you know an investigation is, that an external investigation is no longer happening because of good work that they've done, reward that sort of conduct. I think from the FCA side, they need to certainly, and not just the FCA, other um, financial crime uh, law enforcement agencies really need to improve the, the the pay so that the regulators are being more efficient and more effective um, and retaining good people as well.
1: So you talked about culture being. At the center of this and not just use the MLRO as someone, a scapegoat, someone to blame when things go uh, wrong. How do you think if, you know, banks, financial services companies who are listening that think that maybe think, ouch, we should maybe change our culture a bit what kind of advice would you give to top management to kind of put more emphasis on compliance to retain their mlro
0: yeah i mean look culture in banking is something that's always discussed it's been discussed for many many years i don't i think we're you know there's more of a focus on it and people are more aware of it but whether it's 100% there at the moment probably not i think um, mlros you know, banging the drum constantly of how good, you know, how good they they are to an organization and the good things they're doing is important. But I just think that you almost need to have a day in the life of an MLRO for other people who who, do, who don't work in financial crime side of the business. I think there needs to be some some improved transparency of board members, for example, you know, the very, very senior people within organizations spending more time with their financial crime compliance function to actually see the challenges. Because I know certain boards and certain organizations, they'll get their annual report, they'll look through the numbers and go, well, we've got X amount of SARS that have increased or we've had this project that's happened. They don't necessarily understand the day-to-day pressures that MLROs and other financial crime compliance staff are facing. And I think once they gain a better understanding of the the day-to-day, there will be a better um, turnaround and tone from the top in relation to resourcing and, and the salaries and the like.
1: Yeah, you talked about the culture in banking. So obviously at Streis, we work with a lot of uh, banks and uh, payment companies too. But I got to say that whenever I meet the people on the compliance side, AML side, it's just very different from like a typical banking culture because people usually go into the financial crime prevention side to do good. It's not to make money. So it's usually just so friendly, well-meaning people who just want to do a good thing. So meeting those type of people. And I didn't have a background in financial services before uh, starting to work in AML. It's just been such a, it's been such a like pleasant experience. Like this morning, I went to visit one of our banking customers and it's, yeah, it's just really, really nice. And it's really good to have these open-ended discussions about what's happening and the risks and what the crimes you're seeing, et cetera. But you also said this, um, you know, the MLROs are usually just seen as the people who, uh, who say no. And I had uh, um, the head of AML from uh, Vips Mobile Pay on the show quite a while back. And she talked about how they had implemented this early bird principle. I think that's what she called it. And they had like this really nice, uh, you know, theme around it. And it was like the earlier you guys invite us in, in any type of process, product development, whatever, the higher the chances that we say yes. So Absolutely. she had used this early bird principle to kind of push it back on the organization, the commercial sides to to get them involved so they can say yes instead of coming at the very end before a product launch or before something and they're like no we can't do this like why haven't you notified us before
0: absolutely and I think you know if you've got the compliance and this is not just for financial crime but compliance more generally I think if you bring your, your compliance people along on the journey with you you've got a much better chance of making it work and I've seen within many organizations who've done that have a really really good result and outcome i think when you just look at compliance and financial crime as well we've got to get this past these guys right at the end it's just a tick the box that we need to go through that's generally when you're going to have bigger issues because they don't understand it pr- properly and i think when you look at the the general and i'm speaking gener- generically the people that go into the financial crime world especially things like fintechs. Generally speaking, we don't have a technical background. I mean, there are certain MLROs who, who have come from from that side of things. But compliance people generally don't have that particular st- that's, um, strength in their skill set. And if you take them on the journey and you explain to them how it works and you explain how this bit of code is going to work and you explain and explore the geographic risk and, and it goes both ways. You know, the financial crime people explaining why there's a geographic risk in a certain area for delivering a certain product you develop a more harmonious approach, and, and and there isn't that hostility between, you know, th- that you traditionally see with the second line of defense.
1: So you went from consulting MLRO, and now you're back as a consultant. So I am, yes, w- in your current role as a consultant, have you changed? So n- like change in a way that you're now championing MLRO differently? Do you consult differently now, having this MLRO? Uh, experience. I'm just trying to see, you not know, think about like, are you helping the solution now from the outside? I,
0: I think a lot of the work that I do is usually it, it's, it's when things have gone wrong. It's more of a forensic approach. I always try and keep an open mind in relation to what the MLRO has done and try and find the good things they've done. I think quite often by the time people like me turn up and it's a, you know, it's a one six six environment. It's a, um, it's a v VREC environment. It's, 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 it's things have gone wrong. Um, and I think MLROs need to be supported. And I think if you're making a decision, and you know we all make decisions on the fly as an MLRO that sometimes backfire, I think if you're confident in the decision that you've made, you've clearly documented why you've done something, and you can explain it, I think you're going to have always have less issues. And I, and that's what I look for. I always want to look for the good. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there are certain MLROs out there who are rotten, <laughs> and have, have done the wrong thing and have, you know, run for the hills. But the vast majority out there are doing the right thing and doing it from a good place. And I think if, if you're able to defend your decisions, and, and you've got good documentation, it's always going to leave you in a good place.
1: So to go back to the very top questions, how the solution how how do we stop mlro burnout your top top 3 tips
0: top three tips I think would be it's pay pay absolutely I think pay and resources uh, are a huge one I think if the MLRO has got the support they can delegate work to people they're not having to do everything they they can bring in the right skills when they need it that's a big one I think two um, MLROs talking to each other and having other you know leaning on other networks and and having other people they can pick up the phone to talk to about these issues is really really important the amount of times that I had something difficult I had to deal with and I I, lucky enough have people that I could pick up the phone to and say hey how would you handle this situation gives you a a huge amount of reassurance that you're doing the right thing and then and then if heaven forbid something does go wrong which is probably point number three is that you've documented and evidenced everything Um, it can be time consuming and quite often decisions need to be made on the fly and that's half the challenge being an MLRO is is being able to make those decisions quickly whilst doing other things I think the main thing and the main sort of big important thing that i would put out there is just document 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 it's probably things that we've all heard before but the amount of situations i've seen where people have made a pretty dicey or you know somewhat controversial decision and then when when being looked at retrospectively you think why on earth did that that make that decision at the time if it's evidenced and recorded properly it will make your life a whole lot easier to account to both, you know, board, senior management, and if necessary, regulators and law enforcement.
1: So pay and uh, resources, community support, and documentation.
0: Yeah, definitely the three top things.
1: We're nearing the end. But as I said, it wasn't only you who have faced, you know, the MLRO burnout. Lots of people commented, sent DMs. It's an issue that people care about. So before we close up, I just wanted to share some points from the wider laundry community. Leanne writes the following: Firms offering an MLRO anything less than a hundred k at a bare minimum should expect high turnover, especially when their necks are on the line and there are poor systems and controls. And we said, like salaries, the top thing here. Do you agree? Is a hundred k too little for an MLRO?
0: Yeah, I mean, all depends on the size of the firm. I think you know, some of the smaller firms out there, their entire compliance budget might be a hundred grand. So you know, it's quite a lot to ask for that as a salary. But I think you know, overall, um, once you start to deal with the more medium-sized firms and up 100K should really be the base for the amount of risk that you need to take on board, the amount of customers you're having to deal with, absolutely agree with that.
1: Then Steve Watson, he writes, if business leaders don't adequately support the MLRO, treat them as a trusted professional advisor with appropriate authority and act on their recommendations As is expected by most regulators, then that could also be another reason for leaving a specific firm. And we did touch upon culture, but how do we improve on this feedback loop that he touches upon?
0: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think um, finding the right MLRO is always important. It's, It's vital and critical. And how firms do that is always going to play a vital role in the end I think if you're going through recruitment firms they're not necessarily going to find you the right person they'll find you a person but getting that right and making sure that what the what the individual is prepared to do and take on board in terms of risk is is aligned with what the business is going to do like I sort of mentioned earlier the amount of businesses I've seen that have decided all of a sudden overnight are we going to do crypto or we're going to move into a high-risk third country or we're going to do something completely different which that MLRO was never really one prepared for involved in the decision making is all is going to backfire
1: andrew s he writes may and this touches upon something we said earlier as well about making the c-level more responsible mm. make the ceo carry direct personal responsibility with the chair of the board personally responsible for overseeing the ceo's performance then you will get some attention so <laughs> What do you think?
0: I I guess, you know, from a UK perspective with the senior management, the SMRC, which everyone's sort of probably familiar with the UK audience maybe, and there's equivalent schemes outside of the UK, the C-suite have a level of accountability and responsibility for this. I think what's important is that people who sit in other senior management functions that are not in the financial crime perspective feel a bit of the pressure and pain that the MLRO is constantly feeling. And I think if there's some way of, you know, rotating that around so that everyone who's in any sort of senior management function can feel a bit of that and can understand and appreciate it a bit more, I think you'll start to see some some better outcomes. But I mean, that's not to say that I know there'll be listeners in other countries that don't have an equivalent scheme. And I think for them, it's even more vital that, um, that the C-suite feel and understand the the, the heavy burden that people who work in compliance face.
1: And if there's anyone who is interested in uh, digging more into this topic of culture, I would recommend going back to episode 39 of The Laundry, where the topic is how a naive compliance culture opened the doors for money laundering, which is with uh, the former chief compliance officer in Swedbank, Viveka Strangert, who we know, She uh, lost her job in Svedbank after raising concerns about money laundering. And we know that they ended up getting a big fine. So it's a very interesting conversation. And thanks so much to everyone who sent in their thoughts on this topic. Please do keep chatting with us on social media and we'll keep feeding that into the show. Thank you so much for joining, Adam. This brings the spin of the laundry to an end. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you?
0: Yeah, so I'm, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. So my name's Adam Velasa. Our uh, surname so is V-I-L-A-C-A. Um, find me on LinkedIn. More than happy to connect and chat with anyone who wants to talk about this further. Money makes
1: a world go Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to go check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. To get in touch with the laundry team, you can comment on the Strice LinkedIn page, my LinkedIn page, or email laundry at strice.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Marit. Our producer was Matthew. Our engineers were Nicholas and Dominic. The laundry is proudly produced by Strice, the AML automation cloud. So if you're looking for an effective AML solution for your organization, you should go check out strice.ai. See you next time.